0: is the place. It's the only place like this place. There's no place like it anywhere else. And if you're looking for a place that will help you develop absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God, if you're looking for a place that will help you stretch and grow in God's direction, well, this is the place. It's like no other place. And I'm glad you've joined us here today on Faith Is. And I say it over and over, and we'll remind ourselves this week as well, that faith is absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God. Now, you and I know, we're ready, eager, willing to admit that faith is much more than that. But it seems to me that as we live our lives, that is a very practical and livable understanding of faith. Faith is one of those abstract concepts Some of us love wrestling with abstract concepts. Some of us, can we be honest, that kind of stuff drives us nuts. We just want the bottom line. Well, wherever you are, however you are, this is the place where we're going to help each other stretch in God's direction. We're going to help each other develop faith as we understand it, being absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God. And we're going to... Learn how that helps us live our lives with a different, a better, a fresh perspective. And we're going to learn that through the life of Joseph today. Well, I'm Pastor Rick Stevens, and I'm so glad you've joined us. I'm the pastor of Diplomat Wesleyan Church in Cape Coral, Florida, a church like many churches around the country. But I think we have some special qualities, and I'm really particularly proud of our people for one thing. And And it's not meant to be a diversion. I'm not really just trying to say good things about them because I want to say good things about them. It's not a diversion from our topic. It's not just trying to be that guy that says things. But I want you to understand that one of the problems of our age is this idea of truth. Truth. We seem to want to make up that which is true. And we want it to be true because we want it to be true. Whether or not it really is so or not doesn't seem to matter as much as we want it to be true. We hear the expression, and you've probably heard me and I maybe don't say it often enough, or maybe I say it too often, that it drives me nuts when people say my truth. Well, I'm happy for you to have your perspective. Don't misunderstand. We all have our perspective on things. A lot of people have their opinions about one thing or another, and and there's freedom to have opinions about things, but there isn't that kind of flexibility when it comes to that which is true. The truth is simply the truth. It's not your truth. It's not my truth. It is the truth. And that brings me to our church. One of the things that really encourages me, in fact, I don't know how I would manage without it, frankly, is that our church is willing to consider that which is true and the truth as God presents it to us. Our church says to me, not necessarily in words, although occasionally someone might mention it, they say to me, we want you as our pastor to tell us the truth as God helps you understand it. We want you to look at the Bible To think about it, to study it, to hear God's voice, and to tell us what God says so we will understand the truth as God wants us to understand it. Now, that's really freeing for me. It gives me a lot of um, space to, to think and to study and to then teach and preach about the Bible. It also is an enormous responsibility because if people are willing to say that to me then it's really important for me to take that seriously enough to not just mail it in so to speak but to really apply my understanding and what god helps me with the gifts god has given me to sort out truth from error so that we can follow god faithfully now i say that that's a really commendable quality of our church and i mean that what concerns me, and I don't know this because I'm not out and about in lots of other churches. I mean, I have my responsibilities here. Where would you expect me to be? But I hear, and I kind of pick up in the wind, you know, how you get these senses of things, that that not all people who claim to be followers of Jesus want to hear the truth. They sometimes want to hear what they want to hear, or maybe even worse, they want their pastors to leave certain issues alone and not talk about them because they don't feel comfortable with that or or they might say well that is divisive or i'm offended by that well i'm really really concerned about that idea out there because god says we need to to seek the truth Uh, in fact god was revealed to us in the person of jesus who is described as the way the truth and the life. The Bible says the truth will set us free. It doesn't tell us anywhere that we're to define truth as we want it to be. It says we need to hear what God says. In fact, you go back to the Garden of Eden, that very first encounter that Adam and Eve had with the tempter, the evil one, the Satan as it's described in Genesis. The very first thing that they were tempted to do was to develop their truth. Now, it doesn't say that there. I know that. You know that. But what it does say is that Satan's temptation is that if they will eat of that forbidden fruit, they will be like God. Which means they can be God to themselves. And isn't that what too many times people want when they say, it's my truth. I want it to be this way. Well, here... And at our church, and I hope at your church. In fact, if your church doesn't do this, I, I strongly encourage you to either work with other people to change that attitude, or you're going to have to find another church because that church will never embrace the truth, and you will have trouble understanding what God wants you to do. Now, I don't say that lightly because I don't think we need to be hopping from one church to another. Never. No. That's, that's harmful to the church. It's harmful to us. I've seen people leave churches because they got a little bit out of shape when what they should have gotten was allowed that little challenge to bend them into God's shape. But that sounds like another sermon, doesn't it? No, I I want to emphasize this idea of the truth. We need to be committed to that. And so I want to just commend my church. I think they, they probably need to hear me say that more often. I think it's kind of become an assumption around our place that we want to understand the truth as God teaches it to us. We don't want to be caught up in deception. And we live in a world of deception. Everywhere you turn, people are trying to deceive you for one reason or another. And that's why it's so important for us to to consider what God tells us and to hear him tell us the truth and to hear him, to allow him, to ask him to guide us in the way we should go so we don't fall into deception. We surely do not want to do that. That is a trap. That is a trap from the evil one, and it puts our very souls in peril. So seek the truth. Find out the truth. Stand up for the truth. Defend the truth. Don't fall into deception. In fact, there's one guy who who I've met. I couldn't call him a friend because I don't know him that well. He seems like a friend from what I've heard and read of what he does. But he, uh, he says in a world of deception, truth is the only rebellion we have left. And sometimes it will feel like a rebellion when you follow the truth. So anyway, that's that's a beginning today. We really want to look at, um, at the life of Joseph. And we want to look at that and some of the key stories that took place and try to understand it. And we particularly want to look at it with the idea that faith is absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God. Now we started a few weeks ago and we got to Joseph because we started with the idea that what do we mean when we say Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? And so we've talked about that a little bit to get us up to speed. Abraham being that first man that God called into covenant relationship. He invited Abraham to be his covenant partner, and Abraham said yes. As part of that conversation, and as part of leading up to that, God said to Abraham, and I'm going to give you a son, and your offspring, your heirs, will be more numerous than the stars of the sky and the sands of the sea. So that was a pretty big promise to a man who was 75 years old and past the age, he and his wife passed the age where we normally have children. But God made that promise to Abraham, and we've been following Abraham's family ever since. And it became a family, and it became a tribe, and it became several tribes. So the child of promise, and there was a whole lot more went on in all of this and, and mistakes made by Abraham and his wife. But the child of promise was Isaac, Abraham Isaac. And so Isaac was the son born to Abraham and Sarah. He was the one who was the promised son that God had said, I will give you a son. Your, your line will go through your natural born son. And he's the son that God said, I want you to go make a sacrifice and sacrifice your son to me. A chilling story with a lot of layers of meaning. People wrestle with that. And it's okay. Keep wrestling. God rescued that situation by sending a sacrifice. God provided the sacrifice in the same way that God later provided Jesus as the sacrifice for sins. So there's a lot of reasons God did what he did. So Isaac grew up, Abraham, Isaac, and then Jacob. Now, Jacob was a twin, Jacob and Esau. You would think because Esau was the oldest, we would say Esau and Jacob, but we don't because the line of promise was, by God, chosen to go through Jacob. It doesn't didn't diminish Esau. Esau had a great family. He became quite a great people, but... For whatever reason, God had decided to continue his people through Jacob. So Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We picked up the story kind of when Jacob was coming back from having been far from home because he had to run for his life because of the way he treated his brother Esau. And he was concerned when he came back about how Esau would receive him. Well, it worked out Esau received him as a brother. They were reconciled. I don't think the trust between the two was completely restored just because they were reconciled and there was no violence involved. But nonetheless, they were reconciled, and Jacob no longer had to worry about the threat or potential threat coming from his brother. He went to a different area of the country, the land that God had given them, and he began to live his life, have his family, races, children, grandchildren, tend his flocks. He was reconciled with his father after the kind of terrible thing that had happened. And and so the story begins to unfold through the sons of Jacob, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jacob had 12 sons. They became the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, we might pick up on some trouble brewing when we remind ourselves of a couple of things that the Bible tells us. So in Genesis chapter 37, verse 3, it says that now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of uh, more than any other of his children because he was the son of his old age. So that gives you a little idea Israel meaning Jacob remember his name was changed to Israel even after the name change his name is used a little bit interchangeably but anyway it says that he loved Joseph more than his other children he had 11 other sons and so that kind of gives us a clue something's up and sure enough something was up but even before that that kind of trouble surfaced when the scriptures tell us that Isaac loved Esau but Rebekah loved Jacob now Isaac and Rebekah were the two boys parents but Isaac loved Esau and Rebecca loved Jacob well there was all kinds of stuff went on. You can read that story. And now Jacob has come back. He's married. He has children. He has sons. He's he's going to develop his family and live there in the land. He has the 12 tribes of Israel will develop from that. And the son Joseph is set off to check on his brothers who are out herding the sheep. And we're in Genesis, long about chapter uh, 37. So I guess, where we're going to pick this up on the idea of Joseph going out and then he had these dreams that he would be superior to his brothers and even to his mother and father and that was very unsettling to them. Now I'm not convinced that this was Joseph being arrogant because in those days they understood dreams as important and they understood them as as communication from God and so they took that seriously. Joseph certainly did and the fact that he had a two dreams, and they were both similar, showing that his family would one day bow down to him. That was a pretty big deal. It was as though, and it turns out this way, of course, if you know the story, it was as though God was saying, I have something special for you, Joseph. And so that's why I'm not convinced, and and, um, some people will wrestle with this a little bit, I guess, that's fine, you can wrestle with it, but I'm not convinced Joseph was being arrogant here, as much as God was saying, I've got Plans for you. I've got special things. You know, we talked today about God calling people to certain things. Years ago, the main thing we heard people talk about is God calling them to the ministry, and and we still affirm that. If God does not call a person to the ministry, they should not pursue it just because they think it's fun, because that's not the point. And can I tell you, it's not always fun, but that doesn't mean it's misery either. Don't hear me say that. Sometimes people jump to all kinds of weird conclusions. Don't do that. But anyway, Joseph, Joseph here seems to recognize that God has something for him to do. So he tells us to his brothers. The brothers, because Joseph was well-loved, I, he had a special coat. Jacob made a special coat for Joseph, set him apart, and his brothers were jealous. They hated him. Well, his father sends him to check on his brothers who are out some distance away taking care of the flocks they see him, they attack him they were planning to kill him I mean, they did, They thought this was a problem that had to be eliminated it's just remarkable they, they really, really did not like Joseph they ended up stopping short of, of murder they put him in a pit later he was sold to some traders who were going to Egypt they sold him into slavery for For 20 pieces of silver, the equivalent of almost three years wages for a sheep herder at that time. And away he goes down to Egypt. Now, we don't have a lot of information. Most of what we get from the story of Joseph about Joseph's attitude and what he was thinking comes from the few things that he's quoted as saying and comes from what seems to be his attitude going forward. So here he is, 17 years of age, gets this dream that, or two dreams actually, that he's going to be a great person and they're going to bow down to him. And now all of a sudden his brothers, the very ones who he said would bow down to him, have now absolutely had it with him. And they're preparing to eliminate him either by murder, but ultimately by selling him into slavery. And what does Joseph think about these dreams? This sense that God was going to do something in his life because they believed that, the, that God was communicating them through a dream. Now, don't ask me to justify all of that. that. I'm telling you what they thought. I'm not telling you that's the way God thought was best. We have a lot more information about how to hear from God today than to depend upon dreams, okay? So I'm not advocating that you go to sleep and dream so you can hear from God. God can speak to you in much other and probably better ways than to try to figure out a dream. But ancient times were ancient times. We have to understand that. So with all of this going on, Joseph is hauled down to Egypt, taken into captivity, where he begins to work in Potiphar's house. Now, Potiphar was a significant guy in Egypt. He's 17 years old. He's down there, and he is fortunate, really. I mean, nobody's fortunate to be... Sold as a slave certainly joseph wouldn't have thought he was fortunate in that way but he was taken to potiphar's house and potiphar is described as an officer of pharaoh the, as the captain of the guard an egyptian down there so he had a high place so his, his house would have been a wealthy house and as it turned out joseph did really well really well so that it ended up that that he served that household so well that potiphar put him in charge of everything I mean, Joseph ran the place. It wasn't his place. It was Potiphar's place. But but it's very interesting that that Joseph ran everything. I mean, there was little that that Joseph wasn't involved in. Really, two things. Obviously, Potiphar's wife was Potiphar's wife, not Joseph's wife. So, you know, she would have been off limits. But it also says that, that he took care of everything except the food that Potiphar ate. And as we understand it, the Egyptians had some specific dietary practices, and so Potiphar wasn't willing to give that up to Joseph. He still took care of that himself. But imagine, Joseph ran the whole household, the entire place, and Potiphar didn't have to worry about a thing. Now, all went well, and that's a pretty good situation for Joseph. He could have been in a worse situation as a slave, until Potiphar's wife took a shine to him, we might say. Potiphar's wife looked at him and thought he was pretty good looking. Decided that um, she wanted him to be more than just a household servant. And so she tried to seduce him and entice him. And Joseph resisted. Story goes, Joseph resisted regularly over time. It wasn't a one-off thing. It was a regular challenge for him. But he resisted. Good for Joseph, you know. That's that's an important observation there. Very important observation. And so he has this really good position, trusted by Potiphar, and yet Potiphar's wife comes along and tries to seduce him. Well, he consistently said no, and that frustrated her, because she probably, as the wife of Potiphar, was used to getting her way in anything she wanted, but, but Joseph wasn't having anything to do with it. Um, She had power, of course, because of her standing with Potiphar, and Joseph is the one in the vulnerable position, so I mean, it puts him in a real challenging spot, but he continued to say no. He absolutely refused her advances, And, and he seems to have done this for two reasons, out of respect for Potiphar, of course, because Potiphar had put him in charge, and Joseph respected that, but Joseph also said that he wouldn't sin against God. And that gives us a little insight into Joseph's attitude toward God. He wouldn't sin against God. We don't get a lot of straightforward statements in the story of Joseph. We get mostly the story, but here he said he would not sin against God. And we need to remember from that statement that all sin is sin against God. And Joseph seems to have known that, and he absolutely refused to, to, to participate. Well, one day, after this had gone on for a while, she grabbed him by the coat. And, now, it wasn't the same coat that his father gave, gave him. That was long gone. But he, she grabbed him by his coat, and he, resisting, pulled away from her and left the coat behind and ran out. Well, she took that as her opportunity. She screamed and got the household's attention and flat-out lied about Joseph. She said, that Hebrews come in here and he has tried to assault me. Look, he left his coat behind. She was furious. Well, she was furious because she hadn't gotten her way. And she told the lie to show Joseph just who he was and who she was. Well, Potiphar heard about it. And and he he too was furious. Now, it's interesting. We don't really know fully about his fury. But there are some interesting developments that make us wonder Uh, what he was really furious about so long and the short of it is in terms of joseph he sent him off to prison it seems that it may have been a prison more designed for political prisoners not maybe the worst prison that he could have been sent to and so that gives us a little bit of a clue as to say "Hmm, what's going on with potiphar so maybe potiphar and we don't know this but this this kind of circumstantial evidence makes us wonder about that maybe potiphar has some doubt about whether joseph was guilty the way his wife said it now potiphar was in a box he couldn't say that his wife lied about joseph i mean how do you say that your wife lies about your slave i mean he just can't do that but he had to have been saddened because he had trusted joseph so much and he had over time developed confidence in joseph and now here he was losing his best guy because his wife told this tale. And that's a significant loss because now he has to replace somebody to run his household or he has to do the work himself. and So he's, he's losing something that he thought was valuable. And so maybe, maybe he thought that she was up to no good and that she was partly responsible for what's going on or maybe maybe more than partly responsible because as I mentioned, Joseph had a, fairly lenient sentence by being sent to prison but he could have been executed that would have been that serious of an offense but he wasn't so it makes us think that that maybe maybe Potiphar maybe Potiphar had some better ideas as to what's going on here and and it has to be now a, a terrible blow to Joseph because here he's gone from this dream the sense that God had something important for him to a pit from which he's hauled up and sold as a slave taken down to Egypt and sold to Potiphar's house where he really finds himself in a pretty good circumstance and now somebody lies about him again and he's in trouble. His brothers lied to his father about what went on and he doesn't know all that backstory but now here he's lied about and he ends up in prison. What must he be thinking? Well we don't know for sure because we're not told but doesn't Joseph demonstrate what we've talked about here, that he has absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God? And as we go through the story, that will become more and more evident. But we shouldn't overlook that, because that, a lot of us know the end of the story. We shouldn't overlook that Joseph struggles along through the story, and he demonstrates confidence in God, absolute confidence that God is trustworthy, and that God is going to help him, go through this day and the next day and all of the next days so it goes from pretty good household a lot of responsibility trusted by Potiphar to prison but in in very short statement uh, very soon I should say in the telling of the story in the scriptures we discover that all of a sudden Joseph's in charge of the prison And the guy who's supposed to be in charge of the prison doesn't have to worry about anything because he trusts Joseph. And Joseph takes care of everything. Now, part of what's going on here is the Bible makes it clear that, that the Lord was with Joseph. The Lord made it so he would prosper. So the Lord was with Joseph in Potiphar's household. The Lord is now with Joseph in the prison. Now, that's the way the story is told. Those aren't words that come from Joseph. But Joseph seems by his behavior, by all accounts of the way he conducted himself, and and, the, and we know that from the consequences of his behavior, not from straight-up story about what he did specifically, but the consequences of his behavior were good. He benefited. The Lord was with him, and it made him prosper. So even in the prison, Joseph did well, and he became the guy in charge of everything. He ran things in the prison much the same way he ran things in Potiphar's household. Well, over the course of time, two more prisoners show up, and one of them is the king's cupbearer, and the other one is the king's baker. For some reason, king got upset with them, sent them off to prison. This same prison where Joseph is, and that's another reason why this may not have been the worst prison to go to, because there's an indication that that a different kind of prisoner was sent there because of Joseph's circumstance, and now because of the king's cupbearer and baker. Now, the king's cupbearer was the guy that took care of the king's food and drink to make sure that he wasn't poisoned. So that's a pretty significant responsibility. We don't know why the king was upset with him, but we know that the king was, and the king in this instance being Pharaoh. So don't confuse if I say king and Pharaoh. Understand, that's the same thing. In Egypt, they called their kings Pharaoh. And so the king's baker was also there, the one who prepared the bread for the king. And they came to the prison, and Joseph was put in charge of taking care of them. And so he took care of those guys like he took care of the rest of the prison. Time passed, a little bit of time passed, and all of a sudden, both the cupbearer, Pharaoh's cupbearer and Pharaoh's baker have dreams. And they are troubled because they don't know what that dream means. Now, here's Joseph in the prison. Joseph had had two dreams. And when you have two dreams that are similar, that's a reinforcement that this is what God is up to. Well, these men each individually had two dreams. And so they, they weren't reinforced by a second dream so much as they were interestingly, given parallel dreams, and they were dreams that pointed to their fate. And they were troubled, they needed to understand it, and so they wanted Joseph to help them. Well, Joseph helps people when he can, and and we know from his conversation, for sure, later with Pharaoh, and we know from the way the story unfolds, and the way the Bible tells the story, that Joseph did not take credit for being the one who could understand dreams. He acknowledged that God could help them understand the dream. Now, we're going to talk about what the dream was and what it meant and where it goes forward in the story. But while we take this moment to pause, I'd like you to think about how do you think about the things that happen to you? How do you interpret life as it unfolds to you? Are you able to say, along with Joseph, that God is faithful, and I can trust Him. Are you, along with Joseph, able to say, it didn't work out the way I wanted it to in every situation, but I have faith, absolute confidence in God's trustworthiness, that He's going to see me through. Well, he definitely saw Joseph through, and we're going to take a look at all of that, and I want to encourage you to take a breath, take a break, give your mind a rest, and we're going to be right back. You stay with us. I'm Pastor Rick. This is Jodi O'Malley with Nurses Out Loud. Did you know our body is made up of trillions of cells and inside each cell, redox signaling molecules are produced? These molecules hold a sacred place in chemistry because as we age, the vital communication of our immune system becomes less efficient. Click the banner or go to America Out Loud shop to get 25% off your entire order. Use coupon code OUTLOUD25. That's coupon code OUTLOUD25. World-class care from doctors you can trust. All from the comfort of your home. That is One Wellness. Dr. Peter McCullough and his team at The Wellness Company designed the One Wellness membership to provide free monthly supplements and unlimited telemedicine access with doctors that share your values. Go to outloudcare.com today and use code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first month of One Wellness. For 25 years, Global Healing has proudly produced the highest quality supplements and cleansing programs that are rooted in nature and backed by science. Get 15% off all of our products Using code OUT LOUD, global healing, giving you the power to take control of your health naturally. Well, the Out Loud Truth was the rallying call that started it all. AmericaOutLoud.news was an idea, a movement, a place where folks would feel comfortable speaking the truth without being censored or canceled. The First Amendment is alive and well. America Out Loud Talk Radio. It's a fight for the soul of humanity. Welcome back. I'm Pastor Rick Stevens, and you're listening to Faith Is, and we are exploring the life of Joseph. And we've been trying to remind ourselves through Joseph's experiences that we can have faith, absolute confidence in God's trustworthiness. And we followed Joseph from his dreams that he thought he would be a great person that his family would bow down to, to his experience of being almost murdered by his brothers, thrown into a pit, but rescued from being killed to only be sold into slavery, which at first glance doesn't sound like much of a rescue, does it? He ends up in Egypt where he is sold to a man named Potiphar. He runs Potiphar's household, amazingly successful because the Bible tells us the Lord was with him and helped him prosper. He ran the whole household. Potiphar didn't have to worry about a thing because Joseph handled everything without question, without concern. He demonstrated integrity, honesty. He always did the best for Potiphar. Well, he ended up being the victim of a lie. Some of us have been victims of lies too, haven't we? He was the victim of a lie that ended up with him being sent to prison. Well, even in prison, remarkably so, Joseph does well. And again, it says that God was with him and made the things that he worked on prosper. So Joseph ends up running the prison. He's in charge of everything. Uh, The the person who was supposed to be in charge of the prison, he just kind of lets Joseph handle things, makes his life a lot simpler, because Joseph did that. In the course of time, a couple of new prisoners arrive. The king, or Pharaoh's cupbearer, and Pharaoh's baker arrive in the prison. Joseph is put in charge of them. And they wake up one morning troubled by dreams. And Joseph says, well, tell me the dream. Can't God give us the interpretation? And he clearly does not take credit for any interpretation. He clearly credits God with the ability to understand the dreams. Now, that should remind some of us of Daniel. Daniel's another story told at a much later time in a faraway place. But Daniel said the same thing, that God... Could understand and help him understand dreams and God gave Daniel special ability to interpret visions and dreams so here's Joseph many years before saying to these men who were troubled by their dream and and it was troubling in those days if you had a dream and didn't have the interpretation that was troubling and so they were troubled so Joseph says tell me the dream and I'll trust God and help us with the interpretation so they do the uh, the, the man who's the cup bearer who served the king and was re- responsible to make sure the king wasn't poisoned tells him his dream about grapes and three branches and he's going to squeeze the grapes into a cup and serve the king and And Joseph says to him, well, that indicates that in three days' time the king is going to call you back to the palace and restore you to your position. You'll be back serving the king as before. A uh, good Good interpretation. Well, the baker comes along, and he's had a dream, too, and he's troubled. And so the baker says, well, what about my dream? And his dream was where there were three baskets of bread, uh, and and the birds came and ate the bread. It's really quite startling because, um, well birds eating the bread the three baskets that didn't turn out to be a very good interpretation and joseph says and the way it's said in the in the bible it seems like it's just a little coldly straightforward uh it's hard to imagine joseph was kind of cold about it but it just pretty well puts it out there that yep in three days time the uh, king is going to call for you as well but instead of restoring you to your place he's going to have you executed and that's what it means because the birds came along and ate the bread. That's an indication that your time is almost up. Sure enough, it had happens that way. Three days later, the cupbearer goes back to the palace, is restored to his responsibilities, and sadly, the baker is executed. Well, Joseph says to the king's cupbearer, Pharaoh's cupbearer, as he's going out and going back to the palace. Joseph says, when you get to the palace, remember me. Here I am in this prison. Remember me. Maybe you could help me get out of here. Well, the guy gets back to the palace and promptly forgets all about Joseph. Kind of a crushing burden and and goes on for two years. So now Joseph left home because his brother sold him into slavery at age 17 and a lot of time has passed and all through this time at Pharaoh's or at Potiphar's household now helping Pharaoh's cupbearer and baker in prison and then he asked to be remembered that maybe because this guy has access to the king and he could tell him that that Joseph was a great help to him maybe Joseph could get out of prison but he's promptly forgotten until Two years later, two years later, Pharaoh has two dreams the same night. Now this is very interesting because again we're back to two dreams indicating that this is going to happen and giving the people involved strong indication that God is doing something. And they believe this was a way God communicated to them now pharaoh wakes up having had these dreams and he is really anxious to have them interpreted so he calls in all of his guys he's got lots of guys that handle this sort of thing lots of them who could help him with the interpretation we have a lot of information indicating how they would have done that not as much in egypt as we would later in the babylonian period when daniel was in the royal court of the babylonians and they had extensive volumes Of books that would help the wise men of the royal Babylonian court interpret dreams. So Egypt wasn't quite the same as them. But we do know that interpreting dreams was something that could be expected of the advisors to the to the Pharaoh, but they couldn't figure it out. Whatever they consulted, wherever they looked, they just could not get clarity on what the dreams meant. Now, That would have been particularly troublesome to Pharaoh because not being able to interpret a dream was difficult and it made it hard for the person to deal with the the knowledge that they had a dream, but they couldn't tell what it meant. And so that was very, very unsettling. Now, it's also quite interesting that they couldn't quite figure this out because Pharaoh was considered divine. And so you would have thought that a god would have had insight into all of that. Well, it didn't work out that way for Pharaoh, and so they were just really troubled. And it was troubling enough that finally, finally the king's cupbearer remembers a guy named Joseph. And he says to the Pharaoh, when I was put into prison, you remember you sent me to prison, and I had a dream... And there was a man in the prison who interpreted that dream. And sure enough, he said, I would come back and you would restore me to my place. And you did. Maybe we should ask Joseph to do that. So immediately, Pharaoh sends for Joseph. They clean Joseph up, shave his head, clean him up. Um, Head shaving was typical in Egypt. So they would have done that to make him presentable to the Pharaoh. And so he comes in and Pharaoh... You know, wants to know, are you going to be able to interpret the dream? And uh, Joseph says, well, God is the one who can interpret dreams, not me. And And that's very, very interesting. Joseph says it straight up. It is not I. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. So, in other words, God will tell Pharaoh what's going on. So, Pharaoh tells him the dreams. Two dreams. Now, Pharaoh has one dream and wakes up in the night goes back to sleep and has the second dream. So they were both dreams on the same night. And and Pharaoh begins to explain to Joseph what's going on. So he says in his dream, he sees seven cows, fat, sleek, good-looking cows. They come up out of the Nile River. They feed on the grass there. And while they're feeding, seven other cows came up after them. But these were ugly cows, poor, thin so ugly, they'd never been seen like this in Egypt. And he says, the ugly cows, uh, I don't, dreams are dreams, okay, the ugly cows ate the good, fat, sleek cows, but even after they ate them, they were still skinny, thin, and ugly. They didn't benefit from eating the fat cows. Uh, and that, Seemed really odd. Well, it was. So Pharaoh goes on to say, Well, I had a second dream. I went back to sleep and had a second dream. And I dreamed I saw seven ears of grain, good, full ears of grain, like you'd want a harvest, growing on one stalk. So there's the seven wonderful ears of grain. But all of a sudden, seven other ears of grain appeared. They were withered, thin, blighted, as though the east wind had blown across them. And they, they swallowed up the seven good ears, And yet they still looked bad. Pharaoh says, when I told this to all my smart guys, they couldn't help me. Can you help me? And Joseph said, God has revealed to Pharaoh what's going to happen. He said, the seven cows, the seven ears of grain, the good full ones, they represent seven years. They represent seven years of plenty when there will be bountiful harvests and there will be plenty of food to eat and everybody will be well satisfied. But then along come the seven lean cows, the seven thin ears of grain that gobble up the, the other ones that came before. He said those represent seven years of famine. So God will send seven good years, but that will be followed by seven years of famine. And God has shown, Joseph said to Pharaoh, God has shown Pharaoh, what he's going to do. And and then, after explaining the dream, Joseph pretty quickly goes on to give Pharaoh advice. And he says to Pharaoh, well, what you should do is you should appoint someone to handle things and get ready for the famine. So you should appoint someone who during these seven good years can begin to store up the grain, can start gathering into into." what we would call warehouses, and keep the grain so that you'll have it during the seven years of famine. So there's going to be seven bountiful years. The thin cows and the thin ears represent famine, and you need to get ready for that so that you'll be prepared when the seven years of famine strike, because as surely as you've had the dream, God is going to do this. Well, Pharaoh's response is quite remarkable. What does he say? He says, well, who better to do this And to put in charge of that than you, Joseph. Now, that's pretty remarkable. Now, we know God had helped Joseph. He had been with him, and had helped him to prosper both at Potiphar's house and in the prison. And apparently, God gave Pharaoh insight to say that Joseph is the guy because God is with him and will help him prosper. Pharaoh didn't say that. I'm not sure if Pharaoh would have even known to say that. But we understand it. And so, Joseph is identified as the guy. And he ends up becoming second-in-command of all of Egypt. Now remember, he was second-in-command in in Potiphar's house. He was second-in-command in in the prison. Now here he is, second-in-command of all Egypt. That is a very big deal. He goes from the dream to the pit, to the prison, to the palace as second-in-command. What a remarkable thing. God has been with him. And after all this time, some 13 years have passed from the time Joseph first had the dream. Joseph is now promoted to a spot that, yes, people will bow down to him. It's hard to wrap our minds around this because when we're familiar with the story, we, we just say, isn't that good? It has a happy ending. Well, up to this point, it does have a happy ending. There's no doubt about it. And yes, we should think that that's a good thing. But we tend to forget the years in between. And, and Joseph waited some 13 years between age 17 and the time he was promoted in Egypt to this important responsibility. And all this time, by all accounts, it's the way the Bible tells the story, Joseph patiently trusted God. Or, as we might say, he had faith in God. He had absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God. In spite of the temptations, to bitterness, to jealousy, to anger, to despair, to self-pity, to all of the things we are all subject to, Joseph apparently remained resolute in his confidence that God was with him. And don't you think that that's an important lesson for us? You know, we go through life and... And we look around and we see, well, this person seems to be doing really well compared to me. And this person over here seems to be really doing well compared to me and that person over there. And comparison is not wise at all. The Bible tells us not to do that. We can't help but notice how we do in comparison to to other people. But, But how we do isn't a measure of our worth, either before God or before other people. God doesn't measure your worth by your wealth. And we shouldn't measure our worth that way either i know it can be discouraging if you have not been able to get to the financial position you thought you should i get that we all understand that but wouldn't it be better to set that aside and say to god i'm going to trust you this hadn't been the way i'd hoped it would be by this point in my life but but i have faith in you and i know you're trustworthy and I'm going to have confidence that that you're going to work everything out the way it should. And really, isn't it true that, I know this is a little bit hard for some of us to think about, but isn't it true it doesn't much matter what happens to us? Because God will work things out. Joseph seemed to understand God had a plan, and he apparently believed that one day people would bow down to him, and they did. Now, I don't expect people to bow down to me. I doubt if you expect people to bow down to you. That's not the point at all. But isn't it isn't it our responsibility to expect God to work out his purposes and for our responsibility to be to remain faithful, to live the way we should, to make sure as Joseph said not to sin against God. And if we do that, can't we trust God to work things out? 13 years it took for Joseph to receive that promise from God. But you know, we've been talking a little bit about Abraham, Abraham was given a promise by God that he would have a son. And that promise was given to Abraham at age 75. It wasn't until he was 100 that he received that promise. 25 years later, before Isaac was born, I guess maybe you and I can be a little bit more patient with God too, right? We live in a world that seems to be fixated on instant gratification. And I hope God will do things for you in a moment that will bless you. I'm happy for God to bless you. I'm not saying that he won't. I'm not wishing that he won't. I'm just suggesting that as life unfolds, we need to develop confidence in God's trustworthiness, in God's faithfulness, and not give in to the temptation to blame God or to complain about this or complain about that. Very easy to do. Probably most of us have done that at one time or another. Let's be honest, okay? But at the same time, let's also be honest in recognizing that God wants us to trust Him. And you know, one day, He's going to make all of the wrongs right. All of the wrongs. And you know, you've probably been wronged. You may have had a fresh experience with that and are going through that, that horror now of one kind or another. But you know, in spite of all of that, God is going to one day make all of the wrongs right. And one day we will live with him forever. You know, I I don't much like the song Imagine. You may have heard that song written some years ago because I don't like the lyrics that it has in there. I think they don't help us and they certainly don't reflect a Christian perspective. But I was noticing that the other day and, and, and it occurred to me really what that song is is communicating is an aspiration for a time like God will lead us to one day. See, one day there will be a place that we live just like the place we've always longed to live. There won't be all of the stuff that goes on in this world, all of the disappointments, all the betrayals, all of the Striving for this and that and the other thing. One day we will live with God forever. And Joseph's life seems to indicate that we can trust God, that one day he will work it all out. Well, Joseph begins his job. He begins to gather all the stuff and they collect all the things and for the seven years. They store up things and Pharaoh gathers it all and really enriches Pharaoh enormously. Famine hits and people began coming to Joseph. Now to buy food, because they can't grow food. The land will not produce. And Pharaoh becomes even more wealthy. But also, Joseph has the opportunity to to help people and to help save lives, because the food is available and they can sell it to people. And so they do. And, And of course, the famine is so widespread that it affects Joseph's family far off in Hebron, where they were living. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob end up there. And so now we're talking about Jacob. And Jacob says to his sons, you need to go to Egypt to buy food. We hear that's available. So off they go. Guess who's in Egypt in charge of food? Well, they don't know that. But they get there, and they they are ushered into Joseph's presence. And, and it's really a long back and forth, really fascinating story, a long back and forth between Joseph and the brothers. And Joseph does not treat them uh how should i say terribly but he is a little rough with them in his expectations in his accusations in um in terms of the way they treated him he really wasn't that bad but it wasn't like they suddenly had a happy reunion and and um way things went no there was a lot of back and forth he sent him home with the expectation that they bring his younger brother benjamin back because he hadn't come on the first trip and lots of pressure is put on these brothers well they end up going home the food they take is exhausted they return to egypt and once again they have to go before joseph and this time he interrogates them again and there's all this back back and forth it's really i would encourage you to read the story because um uh, I'm not telling you all the details, not because I don't want to, but because I think you ought to read the story and understand what's going on here. Over the course of time, Joseph puts them through the wringer in an apparent attempt to make sure they prove that they really are who they say they are. He accuses them of being spies, and that would not have been a good thing. They had to find a way to prove that, and he expects them to prove that. And and finally, finally, over the course of all of this back and forth, Joseph reveals himself to them. And, and up to this point, he has done a number of things like have them sit at the dinner table in order of their birth. And they notice that and say, how would he know this was our birth order? But he does. And so there's all these kind of intriguing little things. But all, over time, Joseph finally reveals himself. And, and I want to read from Genesis 45, starting with verse 1. We're going to read 15 verses. And I'm going to read from the New Living Translation. We haven't used that one here on the program, but it's a good one. And if you're struggling to find one, you might like this one. But here here we go. Genesis 45, verse 1. Joseph could stand it no longer. There were many people in the room, and he said to his attendants, Out, all of you. So he was alone with his brothers when he told them who he was. Then he broke down and wept. He wept so loudly the Egyptians could hear him, and word of it quickly carried to Pharaoh's palace. I am Joseph, he said to his brothers. Is my father still alive? But his brothers were speechless. They were stunned to realize that Joseph was standing there in front of them. Please come closer, he said, said to them. So, so they came closer. And he said again, I am Joseph, your brother, whom you sold into slavery in Egypt. But don't be upset and don't be angry with yourselves for selling me to this place. It was God who sent me here ahead of you to preserve your lives. Could we begin to trust God enough to say to God, my life might not be the way I always imagined it would be, things haven't always turned out the way I wanted them, but can we say to God, you did this for a reason and I trust you. I doubt if it's going to be as dramatic as Joseph, but it doesn't need to be. It just needs to be our faithful confidence, our faith that we can have absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God. I hope you will. I hope you do. I'm Pastor Rick.